The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. This is the 100th episode of Christian Publishing Show. Over the last two years, we've had downloads from 92 different countries, which is Pretty crazy when you think about it, and I want to thank all of you who've shared the show with a friend or who've left us a review on Apple Podcasts, helping us get into that many countries. And who knows, maybe by episode 200, we'll be in 200 countries. So to celebrate 100 episodes, we have a very special guest. Our guest today is a number one New York Times bestselling author who's written 197 books in multiple genres such as biography, self-help, romance, mystery, science fiction, young adult, and thriller. His books have sold over 71 million copies, and he's most well-known for the Left Behind series. In case you haven't guessed it, our guest today is Jerry Jenkins. Jerry Jenkins, welcome to the 100th episode of The Christian Publishing Show. Great to be with you, Tom. Thanks for having me. So how did you get started as a writer? Tell us about your very first book to get published. Well, um, I got started as a writer long before my first book. It really goes back to preschool. My mother taught me to read before I was in kindergarten, which made me an obnoxious uh, elementary school student. And the joke in our family is that by the first grade, I was reading at the fourth grade level. And in college, I was still reading at the fourth grade level. But I always liked to write. She says I wrote stories when I was a kid. I don't remember those. Um, but I read the sports pages every day. And and I read Sports Illustrated as a kid. And um, I used to play a game, a, a dice baseball game that my dad sort of invented. And when I got the, the box score at the end of the game, I would write it up as if I was writing for a newspaper. And when I was 14, I went to the local newspaper, and I, I looked older than I was. I was a big kid at 14. Really an advantage to look older at 14, not so much today. But I, I went to the sports editor, and I said, uh, how are you fixed for sports writers? Because I am one. And uh, he said, oh, you are, are you? And uh, so he assigned me a couple of games at my local high school to cover, and then I would go back to the newspaper office and, and bang those out on a typewriter, manual typewriter, and uh, he would edit me hard and, you know, got rid of a quarter million cliches. He didn't realize I was too young to drive and that my mother was waiting in the parking lot for me <laughs> with the, the car and would drive me back and forth. <laughs> but that's really how I got started. So, And I would get a dollar per inch that survived his edits and wound up in the paper. So I can say that I was I have been a professional writer since uh, I was 14 years old. But my first book came out I was um, I felt a call to full-time Christian work when I was a teenager, uh, a little bit older than than 14, and uh, thought I would have to give up the sports writing and and become a pastor or a missionary, but a wise counselor said to me that night that I made this decision. She said you have to realize that sometimes God equips us before he calls us. And this writing interest of yours may be the vehicle you use to fulfill that call. And that has proven true. So I've never been called to be a writer. I've been called to be a full-time Christian worker. But the writing has been the vehicle I've used to to follow that call. And um, I don't want to ramble on here, but that changes the, the way I look at success too. Because 
most writers think of success as bestsellers and great reviews and whatever. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to have those, but success to me is obedience. I, if I'm obeying the call, it doesn't make any difference how the books do. It's just great that they happen to do well. Yeah, not unlike the Apostle Paul. You know, before he was called to be an apostle, before he was even a believer in Jesus, he was being prepared for his later ministry, you know, working under Gamaliel, who was the number one Pharisee, you know, so famous they still study his writings uh, today in, in synagogues. And he really knew the scripture before he even got started, uh, you know, with his work as, as an apostle. And, and one thing I want to point out here that's very reproducible for those of you listening, um, Jerry, you weren't just writing alone in a closet as a 14-year-old. You were getting feedback from a professional editor from that really early age. And that's what changes practice and transforms it into deliberate practice. So practice can just reinforce the same bad habits. Deliberate practice is when you're recording your speech and listening to it later. It's when you're getting edits back on the work that you're doing. And that's what causes you to get better faster. Because hopefully, you know, on the 10th, baseball game you covered, you were making different mistakes than you were on that first baseball game that you wrote about. Yeah. When you see writers today, a lot of people, you know, they want you to look at their work because they know you've been published or, or that you teach writing or whatever. And it's easy to, de to detect early on that what they want is not criticism or input or helpful, you know, critiques. They want to be discovered. Um, very, very few writers are ready to be discovered. They, they need that input, as you say, from an editor who's critical and, and who's really teaching them. And it's not easy. It's hard. You, nobody likes to be edited. It's painful. But how you respond to it is going to make the difference of whether you succeed or not as a writer. That's right. And the other benefit of journalistic writing is that it's the one industry where deadlines are for real. <laughs> you know, that paper is going out the next morning, whether your column is finished or not. So you really learn to be disciplined in your writing and disciplined with your deadlines. Yeah, I learned that the hard way when I was in the newspaper business. This was long enough ago. I mean, back when I grew up, rainbows were still in black and white, you know. So we were actually setting hot type to have a, a newspaper published. And when the deadline hit, the word deadline was literal. They took that, that hot lead type, and if the clock said, you know, the top of a 12, and that was the deadline, they would tip that tray back into the hot lead uh, melter, and it was dead. And so if they said, you missed your deadline, that means your copy's dead. So you're right. And that taught me a lot. I remember when I was um, a publisher of Moody Press for, for several years back in the 80s, I learned that about one in 100 freelance writers literally make their book deadlines. And so that taught me as a, as a writer on the side, all I have to do is make my deadline and I separate myself from 99% of the competition. Of course, I wanted it to be good and I wanted to keep improving. But just that one little thing I try to teach writers today, just make your deadlines. You'll stick out like a sore thumb. So how do you do that? What's the secret for being the 1%? Well, you have to have a system. And I use a calendar where I I put down the number of, of pages that I need to write. Some people do it by number of words. I happen to do it by pages. So let's say I have a 400-page novel to write and I've got this deadline. I figure out how many days there are between now and then. And I figure out how many pages per day I have to, to write to make it. And I've learned to schedule in procrastination. Uh, it sounds counterintuitive, but I know I'm going to procrastinate. So I block in days where I just say, you know, I may not get anything done this day, but 
the one thing I keep sacrosanct is that deadline. I'm going to make that deadline and make sure my pages are done and I have enough time to edit and rewrite. And uh, it all depends on how badly you want it. If you can make that deadline and beat the date or hit it on the head, uh, it really impresses publishers. In fact, they don't know what to do with your manuscript because they weren't expecting it on time. <laughs> it blows their minds. It does. Um, it's it's interesting because while only one percent of authors hit their deadlines, and working with New York Times bestselling authors, I found that the percentage amongst the successful ones is much higher. And the people who are selling lots of books, some of them miss their deadlines too. Don't don't get the impression that it's like if you miss your deadline, there's no hope. But there's something to be said about that discipline and those rhythms and what you said about wanting it right, being willing to say yes to publishing so loud and yes to writing so loud that it means no to Netflix. Right? It's one thing yeah. to say yes, I want to write my book, but yes, I also want to watch that new TV show that just posted. It's another thing to want the book so much that you're willing to say no to those other things. Yeah, the important thing is what you're willing to give up. When you talked about New York Times bestselling authors seem to be better at making their deadlines, there's such an important factor when you have a big success. When, for instance, Left Behind started selling so phenomenally, I heard from the publisher and they said, you know, it was important that you met your early deadlines. It's even more important now. We have so much writing on this that if you're a month late or a week late, it's going to throw off everything. We've got, you know, trucks scheduled to deliver pallets of books. We've got distributors and, and bookstore managers and everybody waiting for this. And uh, and everything depends on it. So the, the pressure is really greater. And uh, so when you think of the Stephen Kings and the John Grishams and the J.K. Rowlings, they really have to hit those deadlines once they get a big success going. So walk us through your rhythm. I know there's writers who write every day and then writers who go hide in a cave and do their writing in a big bunch. What is your approach when it comes to hitting those deadlines and hitting those smaller goals as you break the, the big deadline into little deadlines? Yeah, I'd say I'm kind of a hybrid because I don't write every day. Stephen King does. I think he writes every day except Christmas Day, which is kind of ironic. But I write when I'm on deadline. And I, I like to take the breaks in between, even though I've, you know, for many years I was writing four books a year. I've, I've slowed that pace a little bit now. But uh, I like to have the breaks. I like to have the variety. And I write in several different genres, which helps too. But uh, when I'm writing and I'm on deadline, I'm up before dawn. And the writing I do before noon is going to be the best writing I do all day. So I don't schedule writing afternoon. I'll, I'll do it if I have to, because I can't fall behind. If I say I'm going to write five pages today and uh, noon comes around and I've only written two, I will finish the, the five pages because otherwise I've got to write more the next day and it gets it starts to pile up on you. So I work in a pretty concentrated fashion when I'm on deadline and, and when I'm cranking it out every day. So it's very focused and very intense, but then you take seasons of rest in between. I do. I think is a really sustainable way to do it. And it, it, in a very Christian way, frankly, right? The idea of Sabbath rest, it's not just a weekly rest. It's also a daily rest, and it's also an annual rest, right? The fields are supposed to rest uh, one year and seven, and there's all these holidays that God adds that the you know Hebrews would follow from time to time where they would take additional breaks. So I think that that's really honoring of the instrument in a sense, where you've got to rest and rejuvenate and let your brain kind of refresh itself. And so it, for me, it makes more sense that you would hit your deadlines than that Stephen King would with his, you know, only one break a year. That seems very grueling to me. 
I want to change directions here real quick and talk a little bit about working with co-authors. You've worked with, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen co-authors over the years in different ways. And I want to get your thoughts on, because I know a lot of our listeners are wondering, how do I get a co-author to write a book with, right? How do I write a book with Tim LaHaye? Well, it's, it's almost a misnomer because anytime my name is on a book, I've done one of two things. I've either written every word or I've edited every word. I never do both. I don't co-write. So if, if my name's on there with somebody else, uh, I've done, I think, 55 books with Chris Fabry, for instance. And on those occasions, he writes every word, and I do a heavy edit and rewrite of, of every word. So that's my role. I, I, I know there are people who co-write. I'm not sure if that would work well for me just knowing my personality and, and the personality of the writers uh, I work with. With Dr. LaHaye, for instance, in that case, I wrote every word, and he served as a sort of theological and scholarly critic and would keep me on track that way. I'm not a theologian or a scholar, and, uh, and he was. And he was also a great cheerleader. Uh, I would send him 100 or 200 pages at a time, and he would say, send me more. I want to know what happens next myself. So that was great. And and one of the things that appealed to me about that project is that he did not want to help write it. It was his idea, and uh, and we talked through a lot of things, but I got the fun part, and, and I got to, to play to my strength, which was the writing of the fiction. So the ship needs just one captain, <laughs> one person who is uh, the alpha, so to speak. And it makes sense. Yeah, that's true. In fact, it's it's true. There, we were alphas in our own ways because it was his idea, and he brought me into the project. We, I mean, we split everything 50-50, which was very generous and, and a great thing. But as far as uh, full veto power over every word, he had that. It was his project. But for the writing, he deferred to me, and we would talk things through. And if there's something he didn't like or he didn't understand, we'd chat it through, and we'd, we'd come to an agreement. But I sort of became the arbiter of the of the words on the page, and and he was the overall alpha and and uh, made the decisions of what what would survive. In some ways, it kind of sounds like going back to your sports background. There's the play by play announcer who's telling you what's actually happening in the game, and then there's the color guy who you know adds a little bit of context here and there and kind of helps round out the experience, right? He's like, oh, this is the new quarterback. He just got drafted from the, you know, this college team. And, but he's not never the guy who says, and there, if it's first and down, and, you know, they're going back for the pass, doesn't give that kind of detail. Is that kind of the approach that you found works best for you? Yeah, I think that the separation of duties is good because I didn't want or need the responsibility of, of being the face of that whole project. If somebody had a problem with the theology or the approach or the eschatology, that was Dr. LaHaye's bailiwick, and he would talk about it. If they didn't like the writing or the story, I had to take the heat, but that was my role. So what advice do you have for somebody looking for that teammate, that person to do the book with? Obviously, you want to get somebody who's willing to have a different role than you, but what else do you look for in a good co-author? Yeah, I think you have to mesh personalities. It's, it's almost like a dating relationship. You have to find somebody that gets you. You want to agree on a lot of things and you want to have, you know, you're excited about the same things. When they come up with an idea that says we should go this way, most of the time you should agree. And if you don't, it might not work. Uh, some people get along well, even though they argue a lot. Um, if that's your personality and uh, you can survive that and not get your feelings hurt, that can work too. 
uh, probably the best way to start with a cooperative type of approach is to look for somebody who has a story to tell but is not a writer. And if you're a writer, you can say, all right, I'll work with you. You tell me your story, and I'll interview you and ask you about more of it, and then I'll try to, to tell you how we should shape this and what, you know, what form it should take. And I'll write it, and I'll try to write it in your words. That's one of the things that, that taught me a lot. With my sports background, I wanted to keep a finger in the sports world, even though I was in you know, full-time Christian writing. So I did a lot of books about Christian athletes. And, you know, they would tell their story. When I wrote their books, I wanted to write it as if they were saying it. So it had to sound like them. So again, they had full veto power over every word, because if I used a word they wouldn't use, they'd say that doesn't sound like me. But I really tried to put myself in their shoes and and not write the book as if I were the athlete, but as if they were the subject, which they were, and knew how to write. And uh, that's a good training approach. And, uh, and it'll teach you a lot if you get a, an agreement like that. So it sounds like really the first step to getting a good co-author is to become a better writer yourself so that you have the skills to bring the storytelling to the book. Yeah, and once you've had a hit, if you, if you have a book or two out there, it doesn't have to be a mega bestseller, but if it's known and somebody reads it and appreciates it, they may come to you. Uh, I find that uh, I've I've rarely had to pursue books the last several years because publishers come to me and say, we have this person whose book we'd like to have you write if you're available and and willing. And uh, if it sounds interesting and something that I could get excited about, I'm happy to do it. So that's really what you want is to to let people know what you do. And and I remember when the Oral Hershiser book came along, that was my first New York Times bestseller. He was a pitcher for the Dodgers back in uh, the 80s. And they were looking at different authors. And I, of all things, it seemed like a crazy thing to do at the time. But I sent uh, a copy of my latest novel to the publisher because they were trying to to work with Hershiser and his agent about who would write the book. And Hershiser's agent read that novel and called Oral and said, I think I found our writer. Sort of, of all things, a, a fiction book is the thing that, that convinced him. So you're right. Yeah, get your writing where it needs to be and people will come to you. And for that matchmaking, you've been matched with a bunch of different people. Is it always initiated by your publisher? Obviously, sometimes it's their agent, your agent. What is the most common way for the matchmaking? And perhaps another way, what's been the most uncommon way to get matched with a co-author? Well, I think the most common way early on, I had to initiate that. I had a few books under my belt, but I would go, I would think of a person that I'd love to do a book with. And uh, I wanted to do a book with Walter Payton when he was a superstar for the Bears. And uh, I had to, to to persuade his agent and a publisher. So I'd say, would you do a, a Walter Payton book? If, would you let me write it if I can get Payton? And uh, they said, sure. And I would pitch the fact that I was a former sports writer and, and had this you know experience and um, so then I would have to track it, track down the, the athlete or his agent and, and talk them into it. So that was true with a book on Walter Payton and Pat Williams, who's now general manager of the Orlando Magic. But I've had publishers come to me for, I remember the Thomas Nelson Company came to me for the, a book on Meadowlark Lemon, who was a childhood hero of mine, a, of Harlem Globetrotter. The very first one, though, when you talk about the most unusual, I was working at Scripture Press, and my boss came to me one day, and he said that he'd been asked to write a book about Hank Aaron, 
And uh, it was supposed to be an inspirational book because Aaron had become, uh, had converted to Catholicism. He, he and his wife were in a Catholic hospital and lost one of their twins. And a priest was real helpful with him. And so he became a devout Catholic. And uh, my boss said he was asked to write this book and it was supposed to be an inspirational book. But he said, maybe you'd like to write it because I don't know that much about football. And I said, yeah, if you think Hank Aaron's a football player, you don't know much about about football. <laughs> but I, I was only 23 at the time and I got so excited about the possibility that I think he saw that enthusiasm and said, well, we'll do it together. I'll write the inspirational part, you write the sports part. But that really opened it. I think that was my fourth book and that really opened doors for me because once you can say, I've worked with Hank Aaron on a book and now I want to do you know some other athlete's book, they're impressed because they're all fans of Hank Aaron, too. So that was a really good early break for me. So early, you had to kind of hustle on your own and be your own matchmaker, both with the person you were co-writing with and with the publisher. And then as you had success, that success led to more success. And then obviously, once you wrote the Left Behind books, I feel like you just had to drop the first one on the table and people are like, okay, <laughs> it got a lot easier or did it. Yeah, it does. I mean, once you have a, you know, I, I had a few bestsellers before that. I, I assisted Billy Graham with his memoir and, and, um, and as I mentioned, had that New York Times bestseller with Oral Hershiser. That opened a lot of doors. But when you have a mega bestseller like Left Behind, I mean, that, that was just craziness. It, it's a, it's a once in a lifetime. You know, any book that sells in the tens of thousands of copies is an incredible success. And if you have a hundred thousand bestseller, or anything near a million. That's just crazy. Well, when Left Behind was at its peak, the first book alone was selling 275,000 copies a month for years. Wow. And, you know, it's it simply, you know, you, you no longer have to write query letters and proposals and, and pitch your stuff here and there. You can literally have your agent call somebody and say, Jerry Jenkins would like to do a book on, and they'll go, okay, what is it? Yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> You know, you, you have to be careful not to take advantage of that and, and just start mailing it in. But yeah, it's it's a tremendous blessing to have a, a big hit and, and have people know your name associated with success. Because that was kind of a special book for a special time, right? Those books came out in the late 90s when people were nervous about Y2K. There was a lot of uncertainty about the future. It was kind of the perfect moment for a mega bestseller. And you had your kind of once-in-a-lifetime runaway hit in the middle of your career, you still had decades of writing ahead of you. What what was it like kind of going back and knowing, you know, it's unlikely that the planets are going to align like that again. What was it like m moving on after, you know, your first post left behind book? Yeah, it was pretty intimidating, actually, because publishers wanted, obviously, they wanted a repeat of left behind. And I was, I think I had, was just about to turn 46 when the first left behind book came out. And by the third or fourth book, it had exploded and become this phenomenon. I remember after that, I would get some really nice deals and contracts for fiction. And they would try to pay at the same level as if it was going to sell like Left Behind. And if it only sold a half a million, which is incredible, they would apologize. <laughs> and, and I'm like, this is, this is a whole different world now, you know. But yeah, there is that thing you have to face, and that is... Everybody wants an, a repeat of the, the mega bestseller, and that's not an easy thing to reproduce. Yeah, but you kept writing, and I think that that's what's most impressive to me. You know, it's one thing to have the 
a big hit. And then you're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm retired now. <laughs> I've sold enough copies of my books where I'll, you know, I, I'm done and, and I won't write anymore. It's what happened with To Kill a Mockingbird, the author who wrote that. She was set for life. She didn't write any books after that. And, you know, it's hard to blame her, right? How do you write a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird? And I wouldn't want to have that job. But you kept writing, which, you know, benefited everybody and also all of your co-authors because you continued writing with co-authors after Left Behind came out. Yeah, you know, there's something to be said for the fact that Left Behind was so big. I, I remember a lot of the media interviews where the, the interviewer would ask me if I'd ever written anything else. And the fact is, Left Behind was my 125th book. So I'm working on my 198th book right now. So I've done a lot more since. But the fact that people weren't even aware of the, of the first 124 books was sobering. But yeah, I was an overnight success after 124 books. <laughs> being faithful in the little things and then being faithful in the big things. So for somebody who wants to learn how to write better from you, is that possible? And if so, where, where should they go to get started? Yeah, I um, have been teaching at writers' conferences for decades, even before I was as visible as I am now. And um, with more visibility and success, it made it easier for me to attract students who want to do what I do. And so I try to be very realistic. But if they go to jerryjenkins.com, I have the Jerry Jenkins Writers Guild. And for a modest monthly fee, they can get all kinds of training. We do four fresh features every month. And we archive everything. So, you know, once you sign up, you get everything we've ever done that's been recorded and archived on our site. And then I have several different more expensive courses and programs that people can, can do. So it really, and then my blogging is for, is free. Anybody can read those, the, my blogs on writing. So I've got something for everybody. If you don't have any money to spend on training, read the blogs. If you can invest a little bit a month, you can get some really good training through the guild. If you can afford one of the, the more expensive courses that, that's more labor intensive for me and, and costs you a little more, that's all there. So, and I love it. I've got about 2,000 online students and, and just really enjoy. Uh, I feel obligated to pass along uh, what I've learned. And I feel so blessed by this career that it's just, uh, it's fun to, to be able to pay it forward. And the nice thing about online courses is it allows you to get access to the education without paying for the extra stuff, right? Often when you go to a writer's conference, you spend $2,000, $3,000 total to be there. And of that, maybe only 500 ends up actually with the writer's conference, right? Because you're paying for the airplane and you're paying for the hotel. And when you're paying $200 a night for the hotel, it gets really expensive. And yet none of that uh, ends up in the classroom. There's a, a saying in Hollywood that you want the money to end up on the screen, right? There's things that you can spend uh, money for for a film that are on screen and things that are off screen and you want as much of the money to be on screen as possible and for a writer's conference most of the money that you're spending is off screen it's on the food at the hotel which is really expensive whereas with an online course pretty much everything ends up being on screen and you're able to have that greater sense of access and also just the greater materials right the, your writers guild has what hundreds of hours of training that's the equivalent of dozens of writers conference attendances and yet at a much lower price yeah and you have access to it 24 7 and you can do it in your pajamas if you want which you know during 2020 is what we all had to do um, but that makes it really convenient and people often mention that that they say you know sometimes i'm not in the mood to hear a, a workshop but tonight at nine o'clock i might be and at two o'clock in the morning i might be and so they just access it then and uh, do it at their convenience and at their own pace so that makes it really attractive i think 
Yeah, and tell us about your self-editing guide. Yeah, I have a a really brief guide. It's 21 things to remember when you're self-editing. And one of the contentions I have is that writers need to become ferocious self-editors. One of the most common mistakes we see with beginning writers is they do a, a rough first draft, which we all do. I wouldn't show my first drafts to my worst enemy. But then they just send it off and say, well, I'm not an editor and you'll have to fix this for me, but here it is. Well, with the competition the way it is, you're not going to get far. Within a few minutes, an editor is going to go, this is too much and I'm not going to invest the, the time and the, and the work. So I urge people to become ferocious self-editors. And this list of 21 things to look for is really helpful, I think. And, you know, I, I think people need to develop a thick skin and then watch for these things like redundancies and, you know, cliches and that type of thing. But the list is there, uh, makes it really handy when you're, when you're self-editing. And if Jerry Jenkins, after 197 books, still has to edit himself, you are not going to get away with not having to edit yourself. Everybody has to edit themselves. And really, you're the best one to do those initial edits because you knew what you meant to say. The editor has to guess. And the rougher your initial draft is that you give the editor, the harder it is for the editor to guess. There eventually gets to be a point where you can't edit it anymore yourself and you need that outside perspective. But the better of a version you can give that outside perspective, the better of an edit they'll give you and the better your book ends up being overall. You know, my feeling is I I tell people because they say, how do I know when I'm done editing it? And I say, you want to be happy with every word. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't need that extra set of eyes. And, and if you place this with a publisher, it'll have an editor assigned to it anyway. You'll, it'll be edited again and proofread and that type of thing. But don't ever say, well, since they have an editor, I'll just send them what I've got and hope for the best. Give them the best you can do. And some people, you know, they look at older stuff they've written and they ask me the same. If you look at your early works, are you embarrassed? Well, in, in a way, I'm not because I look back and I think, my goal at that time was to write the best book I was capable of with what I knew then and the experience I had then. And this is the best I could do. I didn't send it off till I was happy with every word. Yeah, if I did it today, I would do certain things differently and, and I wouldn't be happy with it until it was better. But back then, that was my capacity. And so you need to cut yourself some slack, trust your gut, do the absolute best you can do. And when you're ready to submit your work, make sure it's the absolute best you can do before they see it. Because at some point, you're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You you can't do any more yourself, but there's a, a lot you can do before then. Uh, we're almost out of time, but do you have any final tips or encouragement? Well, on that same score, people say, you know, with the technology we have today, it's so easy to make adjustments and revisions. You know, I could, I can keep changing this forever. And I say, that's what makes you an author is decisions like that. You need to know when you've gone from making it different to making it better. And if you've only, you know, if now you're not making it better, you're only making it different, you're done. So, so get it to where it's the best it can be and, and send it off. And uh, I wish you all the best with it. We will have a link to that free self-editing guide in the show notes at christianpublishingshow.com. Our sponsor today is the Christian Writers Market Guide, which was for a time under the stewardship of Jerry B. Jenkins and is now under the stewardship of uh, Steve Lobby. This is the most comprehensive and highly recommended resource 
on the market for Christians finding an agent, an editor, a publisher, a publicist, a writing coach, and so much more. There's over a thousand listings to help you find the professionals that you need to take your writing to the next level. If you want help with that outside perspective and you're needing help finding an editor, check out the Christian Writers Market Guide, which you can get at christianwritersmarketguide.com. Jerry Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.